Welcome to Bitcoin Sermons, the podcast that preaches how Bitcoin is connected to the coming of Jesus. It's a fascinating topic, and I think it's like the elephant in the room that not many are really talking about, even though it's so obvious. Well, whether you're a Bitcoiner or a Christian or both, this podcast has something for you. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at some topics that came up in the Bitcoin news this week. And this is going to take us over some ground that we touched upon previously. And that was the topic of miners, or more accurately, mining pools, refunding erroneous transactions. There was a case where a transaction mistakenly included a huge fee, which was paid out to the mining pool, and the mining pool, this was F2 pool, refunded that erroneous fee to the one who had initiated that transaction. And the reason this topic comes back to the surface is because this week a new mining pool was launched called Ocean XYZ. And the reasons for the relaunch are to remedy some of the negative characteristics of the existing mining pools and the way that they handle disbursement of funds to the miners themselves. Now, I'm learning right along with you all as I study these things. And previously, when I talked about that refunding of that fee, I didn't have a complete understanding of the reasons why some people were unhappy with what had happened. And the way I explained the situation, I think in principle, is still very relevant and accurate at a certain level. But there is another aspect to the situation that also deserves to be understood, both for technical reasons and for spiritual reasons as they relate to the kingdom of God. And so I would like to just review a little bit the principle that I talked about before and then dive a little bit deeper into the issues that are at stake here and why this new pool called Ocean has now launched what their goals are and the implications of that Okay, so let's go ahead and jump right into that topic. Essentially, what I argued previously was that Bitcoin as a system brings justice. This is something that we've seen emphasized over and over again in this podcast from the very beginning. And this is one of the reasons why it so clearly aligns with the coming of Jesus as described in the Bible because the return of Jesus, in particular, is described in the Bible as a return to absolute justice, righteousness, righteous judgment, in contrast to Jesus' first appearance, in which time he came to bring mercy to the world. Both mercy and justice are attributes of God's character, but those attributes were emphasized in different times. At the time of Jesus' birth, 
the character attribute of mercy was especially exemplified in the idea that the prince of the universe would condescend to become a helpless baby here on this earth, live a life of service, and ultimately die to pay the price for the sins of the world. That was a mission of mercy. But his second coming, when he returns as a king, in other words, with all of the power and authority that is invested in him as the prince of the universe, the son of God, when he comes with that power, he brings justice. That is the character attribute that is emphasized. Now, justice can mean different things to different people. To those who are oppressed, justice is the best news in the world. But to those who are oppressors, justice means punishment. So it's important to understand that when the Bible talks about judgment and justice and the coming of Jesus Christ in power, to the Christian, that's good news or should be good news. To those who are doing the will of the Father, that's good news. But to those who are fighting against God, that's bad news. Now, the point here in how this relates to Bitcoin is the fact that Bitcoin as a monetary system brings with it justice. It's a distributed system which takes it out of the control of any central power, and therefore it's different than the way the banks operate, for example, in being able to amend transactions that were done by mistake. So, for example, with a traditional bank, if you do a transaction and later you find out that it was fraudulent, that perhaps you paid for goods or services that were then not rendered or something of that nature, you can, within a certain time frame according to the law and so forth, you can go to the bank and inform them that this transaction was fraudulent and they have the power to reverse that and ultimately see to it that the recipient is not paid or that those funds are reclaimed. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is a distributed system that works without human intervention in that sense. That when you do a transaction on Bitcoin, it's final. And if you make a mistake, then there's no recourse for you to reclaim those funds other than to appeal to the recipient himself or to the law in regards to pursuing that opponent in court, for example. And this is in contrast to the way that banks provide an avenue for dealing with those situations. Bitcoin, as a monetary system, enforces absolute justice and puts the responsibility where it fully belongs, and that's on the payer. When you make a payment on Bitcoin, it is your responsibility to ensure that that payment is correct according to your wishes, and you cannot go back on that. This may seem exceptionally rigid, but this rigidity is what allows the system to be just. Ultimately, justice means putting responsibility on the appropriate party, and in this case, 
when you give your money to another party, that is your responsibility if it is your money. And that's the key here, is that Bitcoin allows you to be the possessor of your own money, in contrast to the existing banking system, where ultimately they own the money and they give you permission to use it as long as it's within their parameters. And so with that freedom, that ownership that Bitcoin enables you to have over your money comes responsibility, the responsibility for how it is spent and for ensuring that when you spend it, those expenditures are correct. And if you make a mistake in your Bitcoin transactions, that responsibility lies wholly with you. And again, we come back to this concept of justice being good for those who act in harmony with the will of God, but yet it punishes those who act against God. And Bitcoin enforces that. When you act with your transactions, when you transact in a way that is just and equitable and honorable with people who are just and equitable and honorable, then Bitcoin, with its rigid justice, does you good because it ensures that you are in control of your money and that once you spend it, the other person is also in control of what is now his money. But to the extent that people are not just and fair and equitable in their dealings, Bitcoin comes as a punishment. And it says, sorry, you gave that money to this other person who it doesn't matter if they were a crook. You gave them that money and that's your responsibility. It puts the onus of dealing honestly with the participants themselves. And that means things like buyer beware. Before you let go of your money for a product or service, you need to be confident that that product or service is really what you want and that you really will get it, that the party you're dealing with is fair and honest, and that the product itself is what you want. In that way, Bitcoin as a system promotes intelligence. It promotes caution. It promotes sober interactions and gravity commensurate with the amount of the transactions that are being dealt with. Whereas in contrast, the existing banking system, which is kind of like the parent that you can always run to to fix the quarrels that you have with your siblings, that system promotes a dumbing down and a weakening of the individual, a lowering of the level of responsibility carried by the individual at the cost of freedom. In the end, the existing banking system trends toward slavery, whereas the Bitcoin system trends toward self-responsibility or self-sovereignty, kingship. All right, so that was not quite the review I had in mind, but these are important principles. So the last time I talked about this mining fee that was overpaid, I used that as an opportunity to explain how this system, Bitcoin, of absolute justice invokes on the part of individuals the merciful aspect of God's character. Because if the system itself will not show any mercy, then it devolves upon the individuals who are transacting with the system to show mercy. In other words, if I make a transaction with you and 
I make a mistake in the amount, it devolves upon you to recognize or accept that that was a mistake and to recompensate me accordingly. But on the other hand, the ultimate responsibility for that mistake lies with me. And if the other party is unavailable, for example, or simply malicious, the ultimate cost is borne by the one who made the mistake, which is fair and just. So for ordinary human beings that have compassion and understand that humans are fallible, this invokes mercy on the part of humanity. And the example with the mining pool served to illustrate that point. However, there is another aspect to the situation that is important in order to understand why many people were against F2 pool returning the erroneous fee to the one who had made the mistake. And the issue comes down to the structure of the mining pools and how they work. And that's the reason why this new pool called Ocean has launched and why it has plans to re-architect how mining pools operate. The basic issue is that miners themselves are the ones doing the work. They are the ones putting in the effort to compute the hashes and to solve the puzzle that ultimately results in a new block on the blockchain. And it is valuable to make a comparison here between those hashers, the individual people who are doing the work, and actual miners who do work, or for that matter, workers of any kind in society who are actually doing the work in the real world. We talk a lot about Bitcoin being a way to conserve the life force, the work, the products of one's work in a way that cannot be stolen through inflation or other means. And therefore, it's a good system, one that is just and allows a person to be sovereign over their own life and its fruits. But in the way that the mining pools are organized, this principle is not fully embraced. Instead, the miners, the hashers, to be more specific about the type of work they're doing, the work of the hashers has been reduced to merely computation on behalf of the pool. But the mining pool is the one that takes care of building the new block and deciding what transactions go into it and ultimately handling all aspects of mining except for the work of computing the hashes. And this is an efficiency gain, just like centralization of any kind is usually an efficiency gain. Not always, but generally speaking, that's why the world tends towards centralization, is because it provides efficiencies, as well as perhaps other benefits to those who are in control of the system. All right, so mining pools, I won't say, are malicious intentionally in trying to control the system by centralizing a lot of the aspects of mining, which are handled by the pool, as we mentioned. But there's a certain efficiency, a certain smoothness of operation that this allows. Individual hashers want to see 
a return on their investment as soon as possible. In other words, they're doing all this work in terms of hashing and they don't want to have to wait until a block is found, particularly until a block is found by their own efforts to ultimately get the reward. That's the reason for mining pools in the first place is because if you mine as an individual miner without mining with a pool, the fraction of your hash rate in comparison to the whole world is so minuscule that it could be that you don't ever receive a payout or you receive it a long time in the future after making a lot of investments in the cost of mining itself, the electricity costs and the cost of the miner and so forth, maintenance and whatever else. So that's the reason for pools in the first place is to be able to take that incremental hashing work and pay for that on an incremental basis in a way that satisfies all miners by giving them some revenue on an ongoing basis, even though the particular blocks that are mined might not have been solved by a particular hasher that's being paid. It is a form of socialization in that the proceeds from the block rewards and the fees associated with mining a block are socialized among all the workers. Now, it's a good form of socialization in the sense that mining pools pay the workers according to the work that they're putting in, according to the hashes that they are computing. But there are some gray areas. As with any kind of system, there are always loopholes and ways to game the system. And ultimately, the rules of the mining pool in regards to how the miners are paid is not always 100% fair. And there can be technical reasons for that. There can be convenience reasons for that. There are a lot of reasons why there could be slight inaccuracies or unfairness in the way that the payouts are made. And there are ways that the system can be gamed in order to really cause some pretty serious competition problems among mining pools as well. And because of this, it has kind of gotten to the point where the competition for finding blocks and for being an efficient enough mining pool to be able to operate successfully is so strong. The competition is so strong that it's not really that easy to be a mining pool. And you almost have to be able to compete with the big boys just to be able to compete with the big boys as a mining pool. And therefore, since the mining pools themselves represent a centralization of Bitcoin's mining in general, it becomes critical that the hashers themselves are serving no other role than to do the work. I heard recently that there are only, in effect, 12 mining pools servicing the whole Bitcoin blockchain. And so even though there are miners distributed all around the world doing the proof of work, doing the hashing, it is ultimately up to these 12 entities to make all the decisions regarding which transactions go into a block and how 
the rewards are paid out and all these things. So that's a huge centralization risk right there. It's it's even more than a risk. It it is simply centralization in effect already. And that makes censorship a concern today. That opens the door for a lot of problems that thankfully just haven't manifested just because the mining pools are generally behaving. Now, it's generally thought that the hashers have a lot of power because if a mining pool misbehaves, the hashers can simply leave the pool and direct their hashing power to another pool. And in principle, that is correct. But in practice, that's not as easy as it sounds because if there are only 12 pools, how many options do the miners have? And furthermore, it's not easy to start a new pool because of this threshold that is needed in order to be able to compete with the larger mining pools. So it is really a precarious situation and it represents in a form a certain kind of slavery that has happened kind of by accident within the Bitcoin ecosystem. It's kind of like, you know, it's reminiscent in biblical terms of the story of the Israelites moving to Egypt. And at first, Joseph was second only to Pharaoh, and their well-being was entirely guaranteed by the circumstances there in Egypt. But over time, things changed. And a few generations later, the children of Israel found themselves as slaves, as miners, creating bricks and building buildings, hashing, hashing the straw, all at the power of their taskmasters. And in a certain way, that's kind of how mining has become. The hashers are nothing but workers, and they, in many cases, don't even have the visibility into seeing what they're working on. There are a lot of subtle issues here, and I could only recommend some of the excellent podcasts that are available on this topic for those who really want to understand the technical details. In particular, there was a really good one by Stephen Livera, who interviewed the founder of the Ocean Mining Pool. And there he talks about a lot of the technical issues that are contributing to this situation with the existing mining pools. And of course, ultimately, that's the motivation for creating the new pool that he has created. So that's a very insightful episode into understanding the issues with the mining pools and how it poses a risk to Bitcoin as a whole and depreciates the hashers to mere blind laborers. And this is very much a reflection of how the world at large has become. Workers today don't really have a a lot of visibility into what they are working for. Of course, they do in terms of their day-to-day work. But take, for example, an accountant. An accountant works as an accountant dealing with numbers and bottom lines and this and that and all hunky-dory. But he may not be particularly aware of what this money that he's accounting is actually going to accomplish in the greater world. To some degree, of course, yes, he knows what the company does and 
this sort of thing. But that view is limited. And in other professions, it's even worse. For example, a construction worker. He might be working on one particular aspect of a construction, but he has scarcely an idea as to what the entire project encompasses and what its goals and effects will be in the world. He just knows that he's doing a little piece of the work and getting his pay for it. And that's all he has visibility into and that's all he cares because ultimately he's just glad to have a job. And that's kind of how hashing has become. The hashers are just glad to be able to point their hasher to a mining pool and get some wages out of it and hopefully make a profit, which is not so easy these days. So I guess the point I want to make here is that what happens in Bitcoin and particularly what's happening in the world of mining is a reflection of real life struggles that are happening in the world that not everybody is fully aware of, just as hashers are not necessarily aware of the issues that are facing them either. And so this illustrates the point that Bitcoin has come to the world as a system of judgment and that the issues of the world in the macro sense are being played out within the system of Bitcoin and how Bitcoin handles those issues through the involvement of the community is ultimately a reflection or a blueprint or a pattern of how the entire world must address the problems that it is facing. In a certain sense, if you're a worker and you're not sure you're getting the right wages for the work that you're doing, just look at the hashers in the mining pools and you can see a reflection of your issues right there with them. And how they will solve it in the system of Bitcoin is a blueprint for how to solve it in the real world. And because Bitcoin is a financial system to the extent that this financial system becomes the foundation for workers in the real world. To that extent, the system of Bitcoin will influence what happens in the real world. And this is what I think is so beautiful about Bitcoin. And this is also how it plays its role as a system of judgment in the world today. Bitcoin is judging the world and therefore it's so important to pay attention to Bitcoin and to understand it and to contemplate what's going on in the world of Bitcoin, especially if you're a Christian and you understand that God has appointed a day of judgment. Bitcoin gives you insight into that day. Now, coming back to the issue here that we set out to discuss is the fact that ultimately those who understand the concept of proof of work and that it's the hashers themselves, the ones who are doing the work, that ultimately have the power of their own labor in their hands. It is they who should have the responsibility and the privilege. No, I would call it a right. They have the right to their input into the transactions that go into a block and all the other technical details that go into the whole mining process. It is the workers who have a right to contribute to that in proportion to their work. And to the degree that the system does not allow it, 
because of the protocols that are used by the mining pools, there is an injustice to be overcome. And thankfully, Bitcoin is an open protocol. It's an open system. And these issues can be addressed by the population at large, by the hashers, the workers on the Bitcoin network themselves. Unlike where in the real world, sometimes there are factors that make it impossible or impractical for the people to address the issues. And so it's very exciting to watch what is happening in the realm of mining. And particularly, it will be interesting to watch the developments of this new pool, Ocean.xyz. And I hope that these problems can be successfully addressed as they envision. I wish above all that they would develop the solutions as an open source effort rather than keeping it proprietary. But ultimately, whether they do it or not, I expect that the open source community will ultimately step in and reproduce the benefits just as they have in so many other ways. Okay, so the point here that I wanted to make is that when these issues are solved and when the workers, the hashers, ultimately regain the power that is due to them, they will be the ones who have the responsibility of deciding if an erroneous fee is ever refunded. And this gets back to the issue why many in the Bitcoin community were not happy that F2 pool refunded the erroneous fees that were paid. The issue is not that they wanted to be unmerciful. The issue is that they saw the injustice of the fact that the mining pool had the privilege of making that decision when it wasn't their work that contributed to the finding of the block. It was the work of the miners, and therefore it should have been the miners who made that decision as to whether to refund the fee or not. That was the issue at stake, and I completely missed that in the beginning. I wasn't in tune enough to the conversations to really understand that. So that doesn't change the point that I made earlier, which is that the unyielding justice of Bitcoin ultimately invokes human compassion. And it should be that a miner would, out of the goodness of his heart, out of a sense of honesty, should decide to return an erroneous fee, recognizing that it was obviously a mistake. That principle still does not change. But it is also important to understand that that decision really, truly should lie with those who are doing the work. Now, that's a little bit interesting in light of how the ocean pool is intending to operate. Their concept is to pay the hashers directly through the quote-unquote Coinbase transaction in the block, which is Bitcoin's basic method of paying the miners. That's the intrinsic built-in system in Bitcoin that rewards the miners for the blocks that they mine. And by paying the miners through this Coinbase transaction, the proceeds from the block will actually be distributed automatically among the miners. And that transaction will be recorded in the block itself. There's no way that the mining pool 
can exercise some kind of authority over that. Once that trans, once that block is mined, the only way to refund that money is if all the individual hashers who have received a part of the block rewards individually decide to, to reward their fraction of that overpaid fee to the one who overpaid. And so it becomes a fair system in that each individual worker has the capacity to decide how to dispense of the funds that he has worked for, which is a core characteristic of Bitcoin that we talk about often in general, that by storing your income, your wealth in Bitcoin, you possess the sovereignty over how to disperse those funds in the present or in the future, in contrast to the existing fiat banking world where your money goes into the bank and it's up to the bank ultimately whether you're able to spend that or not. Is it within the limits? Is it suspicious? Is it being sent to a recipient that they allow? Have you provided adequate documentation or justification for that transaction? All these things that limit your ability to control the produce of your own labor. That same power needs to go to the Bitcoin hashers. They need to be miners again and not just hashers. Not just for their own benefit, it is for their benefit, but for the benefit of the entire Bitcoin system. Because as long as that power is concentrated in a handful of pools, of mining pools, there is ultimately still a problem. Now, just as I'm speaking here, a certain realization is coming to my attention. Now, I don't know where this is going to go, but this is how my study goes. As I dig into these things, I begin to understand the Word of God in a new light. And just a few minutes ago, I mentioned that I had heard that there are, in actuality, 12 mining pools that have all the authority over the entire mining sector of Bitcoin. And that brings to mind a certain description in the book of Revelation of the kingdom of God. Probably you can guess what it is. I'm going to find where that's written because it's important that we read the exact words of the Bible. Okay, so let's turn to the book of Revelation. And basically, if you have a digital Bible, you can just search for the word 12 in the book of Revelation. And we're just going to take a look at these verses and see what comes up. Now, before we dive into this, I just want to kind of make a point here. And I made a video on this one time. It's called, hmm, I forget the full title, but it's called Streets of Gold. Okay. And essentially it talks about Bitcoin in connection with the Bible. And one of the points, the one that contributes to the title is that Bitcoin as a transparent ledger, as a transparent financial system, it's, it's a financial system, right? So it's a form of gold, right? Gold being money in biblical terms. And when Revelation speaks about transparent gold, that's what Bitcoin is. There is no such thing as transparent gold in reality. Yes, you can beat the gold so thin till it becomes transparent, but this is not, you can't build streets out of that, okay? When the Bible is talking about transparent gold, it's a symbol, it's figurative. And when it says that the street of the city 
is made out of transparent gold, it's referring to a financial system that is built on transparency that's not like the existing banking system, which is very opaque. You cannot see what the powers that be are doing in the financial world. But Bitcoin is a transparent system by virtue of the fact that, uh, that it has this distributed ledger that every node runner literally has a copy of and can investigate and study on his own. And so this is one of the ways that Bitcoin can be seen as the financial system on earth that reflects the kingdom of heaven, that follows the principles of the kingdom of heaven. In particular, that forms the foundation of the holy city. That's deep. And you can take a look at that video, Streets of Gold, and it'll give you a more rounded idea of how this plays together, of how Bitcoin plays together with the book of Revelation. And I think I covered that in some of my earlier podcast episodes as well. But I just want to kind of bring back that concept to mind that you understand that Bitcoin and the Holy City have a relationship. The symbolism of the Holy City actually speaks about Bitcoin, not just in this idea of the street of gold, of transparent gold. You know, streets, by the way, represent commerce. I mean, I can't mention this topic without mentioning that point, that anciently and to this very day, the street is where all the businesses are, right? Main Street. And when the Bible speaks about a street of transparent gold, it's not just talking about a transparent financial system. It's talking about the system of commerce where businesses do their transactions. That's what it's about. That's if you just take an objective and simple view of the symbolism, that's what it means to have streets of gold. And when we're dealing with Bitcoin, we are literally dealing with the matters of the holy city. That's amazing. And that gives a great deal of relevance to the prophecies of the book of Revelation to the very time that we are living in today. Okay, now we should really dig into that subject deeper. And I suppose that's what this whole podcast is about. So we will have opportunity to do that in future episodes. But for the purpose of the topic that we're dealing with today with the miners and the fact that when you boil it all down, there really are only 12 mining pools, then it becomes highly significant what the book of Revelation says. In particular, what it says in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 12, where the holy city is being described. And, well, let me just back up to verse 10, where it begins the description. Or, oh, we could really read the whole chapter. Let's start with verse 1. And I want to, to use this opportunity to show you that from the Bible, if you understand this connection that we just talked about, that Bitcoin is connected to the construction of the holy city, you could say, if you understand that, if you understand this connection with the book of Revelation, that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is actually a prophetic description of something that is taking shape on earth right now in the form of Bitcoin, then that gives the book of Revelation a whole new angle, okay? And let's just kind of have that angle in mind as we read this chapter. Verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So 
instead of trying to imagine that in a very literal sense, imagine it in a symbolic way. Imagine imagine that the whole world has changed. That's something that happens often, or not often, but from time to time. And we are living in one of those times with the introduction of Bitcoin and with other things, frankly, that are happening in the world. The coming of central bank digital currencies and, and other things, the, the, the general centralization of power in the whole world, the overthrow of national sovereignty and the enslavement of the masses. And I mean, in many ways, this world is changing. And here in the book of Revelation, that's what it's describing. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So things have changed. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away. So life as we knew it is no longer, okay? It's passing away and something different is coming. And it says, and there was no more sea. Now, I don't want to dig too deep here right at the moment because not everything here is clear to me in this context. And I'm just looking at this for the first time. And I, I want to focus more on the topic at hand with the miners. But it's good that we sort of look at this in an overview to kind of see how, in general, this chapter is describing what the world would be like under the Bitcoin standard, okay? It would be totally different. It would be a new heaven and a new earth. And whatever this sea represents, it won't be there anymore. Let me just say the sea is where the sea monster resides, the kraken that destroys ships. And that is the symbol for the financial system with its tentacles reaching everywhere. The sea monster of the sea BDCs. <laughs> okay, so that could be where this is going. Under Bitcoin, there would be no more sea and no more sea monster. And I, John, in verse 2, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, now keep in mind, this description is describing the New Jerusalem after the millennium, after the thousand years. And right now, we are at the beginning of the thousand years, not the end of the thousand years. So that's important to understand here too, is that Bitcoin, as we see it today, is it's somehow connected to this New Jerusalem that will come down in a thousand years, okay? But New Jerusalem isn't here today, according to the prophecy, according to the Bible, at least not in the form that it's being described in these verses, okay? But Bitcoin is here today, and Bitcoin is somehow connected to the holy city, and it's described by the prophecies of the book of Revelation, as we saw with the streets of gold, for example. So keep that in mind, that the way Bitcoin is taking shape today is ultimately a forecast or a blueprint or a, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but it's in some way connected to the characteristics of the golden city that will come down from God out of heaven after the thousand years. Verse 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. This is what humanity has been looking forward to ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. Verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So after the thousand years, 
there will be a new earth. The old things will pass away and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And in some way, that is connected to Bitcoin. Isn't that what Bitcoiners are always talking about? Bitcoin fixes this. Under the Bitcoin standard, that wouldn't be that way. Bitcoin de-incentivizes war. All these things that the Bitcoiners say are a reflection, an echo of what God promises that the holy city will bring after a thousand years. Verse 5, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Verse 6, And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. That's the gift of eternal life that will be given after the thousand years. That's when God will overthrow the wicked. That was described in the previous chapter, where all the wicked would be burned up in the lake of fire. And then God, as described in this chapter, will set up his eternal kingdom. That's what the new Jerusalem represents. It is the eternal kingdom. It's a city. It's a world. It's a government, a universal government headquartered in the holy city where God dwells with man that will endure forever. It's a government that will endure forever. This is the answer. Ultimately, it's the settling of the case that Lucifer brought against God long before the earth was even created. Lucifer accused God of not running a just government, and he had a better idea, a better freedom to be free from the law of God. And that has been his aim, is to bring that about in the heavenly realm initially. But ultimately, because of the war that this created in heaven, God created the earth and allowed that battle to come down to the earth and to play out here on the earth as evidence for the court case so that the case could be decided for the rest of the universe. Yeah, it is amazing what God is doing and and what the entire scheme of his plan is. And quite frankly, there's so much richness and depth to the mind of God that atheists simply miss out on because they dismiss it all out of hand. But to the point, this earth is providing the evidence for the court case. But the judgment, the, the actual court proceedings themselves that are examining the evidence, that's what the day of judgment is all about. And that's what we see playing out right now. And that's happening in part, or in a large part, through Bitcoin. Bitcoin is part of the structure of this system of judgment that is deciding the case for the whole universe as to the form of government that is suitable for eternity. And as we see Bitcoin align with the description of the holy city, the city that will endure forever, what we are seeing in Bitcoin is a representation of the kingdom of God. And that's why I emphasize so many times, episode after episode, to align yourself with Bitcoin, to start using Bitcoin, to move your wealth into Bitcoin, to move out of the fiat systems. Because in that way, by moving into Bitcoin, you are aligning yourself with the kingdom of God. You are aligning with his government, with his eternal kingdom. And ultimately, he that sits upon the throne of that kingdom 
will grant to you eternal life after the thousand years if you are part of his kingdom. And that doesn't mean every Bitcoiner is going to be in heaven and only Bitcoiners are going to be in heaven or something silly like that. But what it does mean is that if your character is developed in such a way that is in harmony with Bitcoin, with the principles of Bitcoin, not everybody that holds Bitcoin has any understanding of it or any fidelity to it, okay? But if you understand the principles of Bitcoin, then ultimately you, you won't settle for anything less. And the, the journey, the Bitcoin journey, the journey of learning about Bitcoin, the journey of understanding deeply more and more what Bitcoin really is, how it works, what it represents, all of that is a journey of character development. And for example, just a clear example, you know, it is often said that Bitcoin encourages a long time horizon. That means you're looking more to the future and less to the immediate present. And so, for example, that encourages saving as opposed to frivolous spending just to use up the money before it loses its value. Okay. But if you are the type that really enjoys that frivolous spending and just living in the moment and not caring about the future, then you're not going to like Bitcoin. And even if maybe it gives you some kind of a quick riches, ultimately, you're just going to trade that for dollars and enjoy life. And you're not going to really like Bitcoin for what it is. You might just be happy that you made some money with it. Okay. And and so the next verse really speaks to this character development that is involved. It says in verse 7, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. In other words, he whose character is shaped, changed from a selfish, gratification-focused mindset to one that is thinking of the benefits of others, thinking of the justice that others need, thinking of long-term consequences of the actions one takes today. These are the character developments, some of them, that are involved in adopting Bitcoin. And it's those who overcome, those who change their character, who will ultimately inherit all things. Continuing in verse 7, And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. That's a beautiful promise. And it shows that the overcoming, the change of character, is a change into the similitude of God, the likeness of God. Because being the Son of God implies being like Him, just as a man's physical son shares his genes and is like his father in his very nature, as well as in his behaviors, which are largely learned. And that is what God is doing with his people. That is what the judgment in which Bitcoin is playing an important role is ultimately deciding. It's drawing a distinction between those who overcome, who shall inherit all things, and those who do not overcome. That's verse 8 now. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And again, that lake of fire was described in the previous chapter, chapter 20, whereas chapter 21 here is describing the holy city 
And now we transition into the part that I really wanted to come to. Verse 9, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. So the plagues have already been poured out now. And one of these angels comes to him and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. Now in Christian understanding, the bride of Christ is the church. But here in the book of Revelation, it describes the Lamb's wife not as the church per se, but as the holy city. And this is similar to how, in, for example, in the Old Testament, the old Jerusalem was described as a mother nurturing her children. And in a certain way, that is the figure of a church. The church is a mother or a woman comprised of many members, many children. And so these symbols are compatible. But in the book of Revelation, it's particularly using the symbolism of a city to describe the bride of Christ. But it's understood, of course, that it's not an empty city. It's a city that is inhabited by the children of God who were just described as having his character and inheriting all things, including this city. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates. And now we come to the point, twelve gates. And at the gates, twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Now, isn't this interesting? So many mentions of twelve in this verse. All right, so first of all, this city is described as having a wall. A wall for a city is its defense. It's its protection. Now ask yourself, what is the defense? What is the protection for Bitcoin? What is its security? It is the mining aspect. It is not the node runners. They are sort of the legislative branch. But the miners are the security of the network. Therefore, there is often mention of a security budget, referring to the fees that go into the miners. And I think maybe there's some things to talk about in that respect, but that's not our topic today. But the wall is the wall of encryption. Okay, that, that's a term that others have spoken about. A wall of encryption. That is the protection for Bitcoin. And that is comparable to the wall, great and high, the wall that protects the holy city. But for every city with a protecting wall, you have to have gates so that you can go in and out, right? And this is where the idea comes to me just now in this podcast, as we mentioned earlier, that there are only 12 mining pools in effect in the world. Could those be, or could those represent or be correlated to the 12 gates in some way, each of which has an angel guarding it, and which has a name written thereon, such as this mining pool, that mining pool, which correspond to the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Because each mining pool is a tribe, right? It has a number of miners, a number of workers, a number of hashers that are all contributing to that pool. I don't know. It could be. Then it describes in verse 13, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. In verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, 
Again, that number. And in the name of them, the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. Now that's a deep topic, and I'm going to have to bail on that. I can't, I can't go into every detail here in one episode. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. Now, an amazing study has been done about these things in connection with the heavens. And this holy city, of course, comes from heaven, as it's described here. And if you want to understand these things in detail, and if you want to understand how I came to a lot of the conclusions that I have come to in relation to how Bitcoin is connected to the holy city, then you can go to that original study. It's called The Mystery of the Holy City. And it's a fascinating and thought-provoking and intellectually stimulating study that is well worth your examination. Okay, and that will give you a springboard for thousands of other directions in which you can study the Word of God. But now let's go to verse 17. And he measured the wall thereof. Okay, so we talked about this wall, great and high, and how the city has a wall for protection. And in the context of Bitcoin, the wall of protection is the wall of encryption, the wall of hashes that secure the blockchain and make it impossible to reverse the transactions that have been done in the past. Okay, now every block that's added to the blockchain, roughly every 10 minutes, a new block, makes it that much more difficult to reverse anything that was done in the past, exponentially so, because not only would a person have to invest 10 minutes of the world's hashing power just to undo one block, in theory, and I'm kind of just doing a hand-wavy type of explanation here, not intending to be rigorous about this, but because there are probabilities involved in all sorts of things. But the point is, it takes a huge amount of computational power just to potentially outcompete the current block on the blockchain. That if you then go to redo two blocks, then you've got an exponentially more difficult problem to accomplish. And so, therefore, the security is great and high, as it's described here in verse 12. The wall of protection is great and high. There's just no way you can breach that kind of security. Yes, there's then the potential of a 51% attack, and that's a whole other subject. And that's actually a subject of a different episode that I've done in the past. So just look for that 51% attack, and that will explain a lot for you. But here we're dealing with the characteristics of the city and of its wall. And in verse 15, it speaks about him measuring the wall. And he's given a golden reed. And that can have many different meanings, okay? It's a royal reed. But gold is also a financial term. It's a financial metal. It's a valuable metal. It's the metal that historically served as money. And so when he's measuring this city, you could understand it as a measurement having something to do with financial things. Again, it's it's about this whole concept of the golden city in connection with Bitcoin as a financial citadel. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. Okay, verse 16. And the city lieth four square, 
the length as large as the breadth, like a block, okay? And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, and hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel, the same one who had this golden reed. All right, so let's let's kind of get the big picture here. Okay, he's measuring the city, and let's not be confused by the shape of the city at this point. Many visualize it as a cube, which would fit nicely with this idea of corresponding to the blockchain in some way. But that's not the only kind of city that lies four square and that has an equal height to its width and breadth. There's also the pyramid shape, which has a lot of connotations in the occult world, which is a world that often borrows from things that are legitimately divine, and then it corrupts them. For example, with the all-seeing eye that's on the dollar bill. Okay, and again, these are things that are wonderfully treated in the study that I mentioned called the mystery of the holy city. Okay, but basically what we're dealing with here is a city And just like in ancient times, the way that cities were built, they had a wall that went around the perimeter of the city. And that wall was such that people could stand on it. In fact, there was an entire street on the top of the wall so that chariots could ride all the way around the wall of the city from one corner of the city to the other, all the way around. And soldiers would stand on top of the wall and guard it. And and this same figure is used in describing the holy city and in describing the saints of God and the 144,000 in the book of Revelation standing on this wall. So it's just important to bear in mind the symbolic value of the description here, that when it's talking about a city, the traditional ancient concept of a city is still valid here in understanding the symbolism and in particularly the wall. And so when it says that he measured the wall thereof in verse 17, it says, and he measured the wall thereof and hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is of the angel. Now we read earlier that the wall was great and high, okay? But here it gives an exact measure of the wall. And it's not necessarily the same measure that was previously described as great and high. Walls can have different measurements. The height of the wall can be one thing, but it also has a thickness, a width, like the width of the street on top of the wall, so to speak. That's another measure of the wall. So the point being just that the 144 cubits does not necessarily have to be a linear measurement of the height of the wall. It's simply a measurement of the strength of the wall. That's the critical measurement here when we're talking about a wall, because it is the characteristic of the wall's strength that defines the value of the wall itself. The purpose of the wall is for security, and whether it's the height of the wall that provides that security or the thickness of the wall, in one way or another, it's about the strength, the security of that wall. And now we come to the fascinating point that, and I think I've mentioned this in other episodes, that he measured the wall thereof and hundred and forty and four cubits. Does that number ring a bell to anyone? Well, to a Bitcoiner, it definitely should ring a bell. To any Bitcoiner that has studied, that has watched the blocks, that has done any kind of calculations, that has asked 
himself one simple question. How many blocks are mined in a day on average? Well, if you take one block every 10 minutes on average, that's six blocks per hour. Six times 24 hours is 144 blocks, cubes, cubits in the King James. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that fascinating that, you know, most businesses summarize their daily transactions on a daily basis. Once the business closes, oftentimes, you know, if you've ever been in a company, in a, in a retail store after closing hours, a lot of times you'll hear a dot matrix printer running for an hour or however long, just printing out a summary of all the daily transactions. And of course, that's needed to deliver to the tax office and, and, and so forth. But the point is that businesses operate on this daily cycle and all the transactions that are done on a particular day are all included and bundled up in that day's transactions. And once it's recorded in, a, in, in the permanent summary of the day, there's no changing what's happened there. If you come back the next day and you want a refund for a purchase or something like that, that becomes a new transaction. But there's no undoing of the transactions of the previous day. They are recorded. If it's the same day, you know, if you go, if you're at the register and then you change your mind and you say, oh, okay, no, 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 I don't want to buy that. You know, it's possible that the, the, the cashier just cancels your order in the, in the worst case and starts a new order or, or cancels an item from your order or whatever. And then that won't necessarily end up in the daily summary. But once the day is done and the records are summarized, all the transactions of the day are locked in and fixed. That's the daily routine of every retail business. And if you take that perspective into Bitcoin, every day, all the transactions that are done on Bitcoin are locked in with a security of 144 blocks. They are indelibly recorded on the blockchain. That is the height of the security. That is the strength of the wall. 144 blocks or 144 qubits. And I should just repeat uh, what I often say in this podcast, that my intention here is not in any way to define doctrine. I am just trying to preach concepts here, trying to encourage people to see things in a way that improves their character and that helps them to identify, helps them to recognize that Bitcoin is a system that's in harmony with the kingdom of God and that ultimately it helps you be a better Christian. It's a practical way to live your life in harmony with the kingdom of God. It's a way to put into practice the principles that Jesus taught when he was here on earth. And so I'm just preaching sermons here, so to speak, not trying to define doctrine. That's not my intention here. And I started out from episode number one, you know, with the grand disclaimer that I am exploring these topics with you. And I appeal to you to help me to understand whether these connections, these correlations that I'm making between Bitcoin and the Bible are valid or not? Am I just seeing things? Or is there really something to this? And personally, I, I think we've seen so much evidence over the course of the podcast so far, and there's still yet more that I know that I haven't covered, that I'm convinced that there is something here. But that doesn't necessarily mean every little detail is 100% accurate. And so I appeal to you 
always to engage your own brain, think for yourself, do your own research, study the Bible, pray, seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit for yourself in the same way that Bitcoiners should run their own node. They should have a family altar. They should prove all things just as the Bible teaches, but also in the context of Bitcoin. Don't just trust, verify. Okay, so it's good to re-emphasize that. You know, I don't want my words here to be taken as gospel without any scrutiny. I hope that what I am presenting is gospel. I hope that it is good news to you, and I hope that it is sound, and that it is founded, based, secure on the Word of God. That's my intention. But study these things, like the Bereans, prove whether it is so, and let me know what you think. There are feedback mechanisms that you can make use of on the Fountain app, on Bitcoin Sermons, or just write me directly, however you choose to communicate. On Noster also, I open this to your scrutiny. That's the ground rule of the entire podcast from episode number one. All right, so good to repeat that now and then. Let's move on to verse 18. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. Again, this notion of transparent gold. The whole city, not just the street. But the street emphasizes the point of that it's about commerce. But the whole city was built on this pure gold, transparent gold. That's Bitcoin as a financial system. That's what this city is built on. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire. It goes through all the 12 foundations. And the 12 gates, and this is perhaps more interesting in today's topic because it has to do with this wall and with the security that mining provides to the Bitcoin network. And this is verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold as it were, transparent glass. There's that mention of the street. Okay, so even in the context of the gates, the street is mentioned here as being pure gold like transparent glass. So that connects the gates to Bitcoin as a system of transparent money. At least in some sense, they are connected. They're connected grammatically here as being in the same sentence. Perhaps how mining, even though it's a separate thing to the way the nodes of the Bitcoin network operate, it is related and it's connected. Continuing with verse 22, and I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. All right, so God is omnipresent and he he dwells with his people in the New Jerusalem as it's described. And so there's no need for a temple where you have to go to find God. The temple was a temporary structure only because after the fall of Adam and Eve, mankind could not come and dwell directly in God's presence. They needed this sacrificial system to even be able to approach to God. And God needed to hide his glory in this temple building in order to protect the people from being consumed by his justice. But in the holy city, where only the righteous dwell, there's no need for that temple to hide the glory of God. He freely walks among his people, and therefore there is no temple. And in the context of Bitcoin, there's this notion that we've explored in previous episodes that Bitcoin as a distributed system 
works a lot like how the Holy Spirit works with his church. In other words, just like how it describes God being with his people in the Holy City, Bitcoin as a distributed system with its consensus determining what is truth for the whole network, every node has access to that collective understanding of truth, financial truth. And so it works in the same principle that's being described here, that there is no central bank that determines what is truth in the financial sense. There's no financial temple in that sense. Instead, God Almighty, the embodiment of truth and justice, dwells omnipresently with his people through the whole network. That's wonderful. That's powerful. Verse 23, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Verse 24, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. They become Bitcoiners, all the kings of the earth, all their assets, ultimately are prophesied here to get connected into the system of Bitcoin. They bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it, verse 25, shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Now, this is one of the points that I wanted to come to, that it's, we really need to talk about these gates and what they are. And the fact that there are 12 gates has given me this idea in this episode to associate the 12 gates with the 12 mining pools because ultimately it is those mining pools who are deciding what transactions go into a block and what transactions don't. Now, each block which accepts transactions from individual users is, you could say, like a mini picture of the holy city that lies four square, right, with breadth, width, height, all equal, like a block in that sense, even if maybe that's not the actual shape of the city. And the individuals who enter these blocks, sort of as, a, as mini pictures of the city, are represented by their transactions that get into the blocks through one of the 12 mining pools that ultimately finds a block due to the efforts of the hashers that are contributing to their pool, their tribe, so to speak. So isn't this fascinating? Now, what's even more amazing is that verse 25 here describes that the gates shall not be shut at all by day. And by the way, there shall be no night there. This is talking about, again, after the thousand years. Now, Bitcoin as we have it today is something that's connected to the holy city. It's related to the holy city. It's patterned after the holy city or prophesied by the holy city description. I mean, however you want to state this connection. But somehow there is a connection between Bitcoin today and the holy city after the thousand years. There is a connection there. And it's fascinating to contemplate this. And in particular, it's fascinating to contemplate the role that these mining pools could play as the gatekeepers to the blocks that ultimately form the wall of the holy city. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Now, who are they? It previously said that the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. So not only their own wealth, 
but also the wealth of the nations, the wealth of the people. You know, Bitcoin maximalists get a lot of flack for talking about how Bitcoin's going to take over the world and, you know, consume all the fiat currencies and all this kind of stuff. But that's literally what the Bible says. It says that all the glory and honor, all the wealth of the nations will be brought into Bitcoin, into the holy city ultimately, but as a foreshadowing of that into Bitcoin here and now. So this is really, really fascinating. And verse 27, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, there shall be no wickedness in the holy city, no wicked people. They all perished at the end of the millennium. And when the city comes down from God out of heaven, this is after chapter 20, where the wicked were destroyed by fire. Now the city comes down to a purified earth where there will be no wickedness to enter in. And this kind of ties into what we read about the gates that shall not be shut at all by day in verse 25. Once the wicked are destroyed at the end of the millennium, there will be no reason to shut the gates of the city. The gates are for protection. They are for keeping out the evil. In ancient times, the city gates were closed at night so that thieves would not come into the city under the cover of darkness and steal from the people in the city or make surprise raids or, you know, those sorts of things. And here it refers to the fact that there will be no night, first of all. And why will there be no night? It says here that there was no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it because the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And remember, there is no temple in the city to hide the glory of God. And that means that God's presence permeates the entire city. And for that reason, there's no darkness. The darkness stands for evil. And as long as God is hidden in the temple, so to speak, as long as he's covering himself, that allows sinful people to exist around him in the world without being consumed by his brightness. That's the whole purpose of the temple. That's why the tabernacle system was instituted to protect the sinful children of Israel from the consuming power of the justice of God. But once the purification has taken place, once the millennium is over and the world is purified, and those who dwell in the city have the character of God. They are his sons, as we read earlier in this chapter. There is no reason for him to hide himself in the temple. There's no reason for him to cover his brightness, his justice, because everyone in the city can bask in his light without being injured by it. That's why there's no night there and no need of the sun or moon. Remember, these are symbolic things. It does not mean literally there will be or won't be a sun. That's not the point here. Prophecy is symbolic. And so just to kind of keep this on the topic, though, the gates that shall not be shut, they shall not be shut after the thousand years because there's nothing malicious that will enter the gates. But prior to the thousand years, like, for example, now, when we have a system called Bitcoin that reflects that corresponds to the design of the holy city if the mining pools represent the gates to the holy city then 
We are in a period of time where the gates can be shut. That is highly interesting. That is highly interesting in light of this topic of whether Bitcoin hashers should have more responsibility and should ultimately be able to have more control over how the funds are distributed and what transactions go into a block and all these things that we talked about in the first half of this episode. It really gives food for thought that if the Bible is describing 12 gates and we have 12 mining pools and it's not easy for there to be new pools added because of the technical barrier to entry that is described in other places like the podcast of Stephen Livera that I mentioned. It's not likely that we will have many more pools. This, this really, you know, being that it's prophetic, really gives some food for thought as to what's going to transpire with this new pool called Ocean. Remember, there is no sea in the Holy City. There's no ocean. So it could be that this pool ultimately doesn't make it into the final equation as to what Bitcoin is and what Bitcoin develops into. I don't know. That's highly interesting. And this kind of gives a 180 degree different perspective in comparison to how I started this podcast because I really saw Ocean as promoting progress in the decentralization of the Bitcoin mining ecosystem. And that may be, it may ultimately still be. And from my human perspective, I think that's what is needed because we all know that centralization breeds corruption and that with only 12 mining pools, it can be very easy for powers that be to censor transactions. On the other hand, what we do have in any case is miners' ability to instantly vote to the destruction of a mining pool or to the establishment of a new pool. And so maybe that's enough. I don't know. But this certainly gives a different perspective on things and it really is food for thought. So I like the idea of what Ocean is seeking to accomplish from a technical standpoint. And it will be interesting to see how this plays out and what other insights might come about in the future on this topic. God gives us his word to give us assurance of his plans, to give us insight, to give us wisdom. But we are mere mortals. We are fallible. We are limited in our understanding, in our scope. There are only so many hours in a day to study. Our minds are limited, often be clouded, and cannot comprehend the full scope of God's plans. And so we need to maintain an open mind and work hard to constantly understand, reevaluate, and pursue a clear and harmonious understanding of God's Word. So I hope you keep that attitude as well. And so this was really an interesting podcast. I think we've come to the end of it here, and I'm honestly not sure what to make of all this. So... Thanks for joining me in this fascinating study, and I would be interested in your opinions on this, and certainly it'll be working in my mind going forward. I will be, in any case, watching what happens with the ocean mining pool and, in general, with the mining Bitcoin mining industry. It's a topic of great interest, and in particular, if you look at my episode about the voice of God like many waters, 
That's a very interesting episode that deals with miming in a unique way that connects to the book of Revelation that really shows the importance of miming in the plan of God and uh, be worth reviewing that in this context as well. I guess if I were to try to sort of make a conclusion here, what did we learn from this? I would have to say that not all centralization is bad. Not all custody is bad. You know, a lot of times in the Bitcoin space, we get very fanatical, I could say, about some of the principles involved. Decentralization, yes, it's critical. It's important. It's what makes Bitcoin what it is. But that doesn't mean there's no role for centralization. It just means that ultimately you must have decentralization to keep the centralization in check. The same is with custody. Sometimes we are just adamant about self-custody as if custody by others has no role whatsoever. But that's not really the way it is. Self-custody is absolutely necessary and it's important that people self-custody because that's what ensures the safety of the custody solutions. Because everyone knows and has the power to immediately take their money out of the bank, so to speak, whenever they suspect a problem. Take their money out of the custody solutions. And those who are extrajudicious may keep their money in self-custody all the time anyway and forego the convenience of custody solutions. That's okay. Having self-custody is essential. That's what makes the system work. That's what makes it a solution to the problems that we face today. But that doesn't mean there's no space left for custody solutions, okay? And so it could be that this kind of concept applies in a certain way to the mining as well. Notice that the ocean, the sea, was no longer present in the description of the holy city after the thousand years. That implies, in fact, the very mention of it calls us to notice that there was a sea prior to that. This could be the solution now to the whole predicament here that we seem to have run into, that prior to the end of the thousand years, prior to this new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, there is a sea, there is an ocean, and it could be that the ocean pool is necessary as the pool that keeps the others in line, just like how self-custody keeps the custodians in line, just like how the distributed ledger keeps the centralized services in line. It could be that the principles that the ocean pool is developing are the ones that keep the other pools in line, keep them honest. I don't know. That could be the answer here that would support both the development of these more secure features that actually are more in line with the principles of how Bitcoin was intended to operate in terms of how hashers were never meant to be separate from miners and that the hashers should have due input into the construction of the blocks and the distribution of the rewards. So I'm going to say that's the solution for this problem today. And that was indeed a fascinating episode. Today, yes, we have the ocean pool and it does serve an important purpose. But after the thousand years, that important purpose won't be needed anymore because the 12 gates will always be open. There will be no mechanism or need 
to censor the transactions because all wickedness will have already been purged from the world. That makes sense to me. Whew, that that was, wow, what an episode. All right, I hope you enjoyed it. This was a fascinating journey today in this study, and I thank you for joining me on this study, and I pray that it was a blessing to you and that it strengthens your faith, not only in the power of God, but also that it encourages you to put that faith into practice here and now, today, by aligning yourself with Bitcoin and committing your funds to the security of the Bitcoin network and ultimately taking responsibility for your actions and for your for the products of your life in the form of money by using Bitcoin as the medium in which to store your wealth and transact with others. And in that way, you can play your part in the final judgment as described in the book of Revelation. God bless you. Have a great week. And I look forward to speaking with you again next week.